Hey, this is the Jazz Violin Podcast, episode 37, and today I'm chatting with Laura Risk. start off just chatting a little bit about the patreon account i'll be quick don't worry if you would like to support the podcast you can do so via patreon it's a way that you the listener can support us with as little as one pound one dollar one euro a month if you feel like the jazz violin podcast is a large part of your life and you're sitting there waiting every month for it to come out then please don't hesitate to uh, help me out on patreon you get a load of extra things on there and uh, you can also on my patreon account you can find a link to my Jazz Violin Practice Club. Anyway, I'm going to talk about Laura. Laura is a fiddler and academic based in Canada. And I recently saw a really great article that she wrote in Strings Magazine about the life and music of the widely unknown violinist Ginger Smock. So she, Ginger Smock was around in the 40s and 50s. I guess you could call her like a sort of a protege of Stuff Smith to some degree. Um, and she just plays so great with loads of swing, loads of feel. And yeah, when I first read this uh, article by Laura, I was so shocked that I had never heard of her or I definitely hadn't heard much of her in the past. Yeah, and Laura has been doing quite a lot to try and change that. She recently published this article and she's in the middle of going deeper and writing a full ac academic paper on the life and music of Ginger Smart. It was really nice to chat to Laura and to hear uh, sort of what went into writing this article and what's gone into all of her research. It was also nice to hear Laura's thoughts on Ginger's music and career. Okay, thanks very much. Hope you enjoy. How are things? Uh, well, you're Canada, right? Yeah, I am. How are things there? Oh, Quebec? Good. Yeah, Quebec. It's uh, good, cold, very, very snowy. We have a very snowy winter, mm -hmm. um, which has been great. Yeah, it's beautiful. And uh, just, I love going out in the snow. What's the, uh, what's the, yeah, the situation like there? Yeah, what's the, are you, are you, you're not in lockdown, are you? Oh, yeah, we are. There's a you curfew are, okay. and, and um, pretty strict regulations. Okay. So we're all, I think we're all in the same boat, aren't we? Yeah, hopefully not for too much, too much longer though. I don't know how, how it's going with you guys, but we're, we're seeing a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel, I think. Yeah, yeah. well, we'll see. <laughs> it's a long time. Yeah, yeah it is. Um, yeah, just a small amount of light and that, that's, that's keeping me going at the moment. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, what would you like to know? Basically how you found yourself playing the violin. How about we start with that? All right. Sure. I grew up in California um, in San Francisco and um, 
I started playing violin when I was, I, don't, I think I was about seven or eight. Um, my parents signed me up for violin lessons with yeah. a local teacher. Um, and so that was classical violin um, with the Suzuki method. And then when I was um, 12 years old, 12, 13, then um, I got interested in fiddle music mm-hmm. um, through through a good friend who was who had also just started um, fiddling. We were both playing violin and, and she began fiddling and brought me along to, to this wonderful fiddle camp called Valley of the Moon Scottish Fiddling School. So ah. I got into Scottish fiddling mm. when I was a teenager. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, that's primarily what I do musically. I, um, I did keep taking classical lessons for a while, but, um, but really I'm a fiddler. Is there much of a, like a Scottish music scene in Canada? Um, well, Canada is a a large country. Um, there's, uh, quite a lot of fiddling in, in Canada of many different styles. Um, you know, I'd say that for sure the hotbed of, of Scottish music in Canada would be Cape Breton and Nova Scotia, which um, which is its own its own music, its own musical style that that you know comes out of Scottish immigration to Cape Breton. Um, but yeah, when I was growing up, it wasn't here. Obviously, it was in California. Sure. Yeah. And. Um, there's a pretty good scene of Scottish fiddling in California, believe it really? or not. Um, yeah, it's great. It's very, very strong. And a lot of that is due to Alistair Fraser, this great Scottish fiddler who moved there in the 80s and and launched this music camp that I mentioned and, and uh-huh. a fiddle club and just, yeah, second music camp. So there's, a, there's this very vibrant... Um, scene of people who love to play scottish fiddle tunes it's really interesting knowing that there's a there's a there's little pockets around the world that are into you know that that are into scottish music so what i would be interested to know is how you found out about ginger smock well i was doing my graduate studies Mm -hmm. at mcgill university in musicology and i think the system here is a bit different than it is in the uk in terms of how how graduate school works but here you take courses for several mm-hmm. years those seminars graduate seminars and um before you start working on your dissertation so i was taking this wonderful graduate seminar called gender and jazz mm-hmm. with professor lisa berg and um as you do in the graduate seminar every week we had a certain number of articles that we were reading or books or chapters but then we also had um, listenings, so she would, she would, she would make you know the the weekly reading and listening list. So we we'd read whatever the texts were, and then we'd listen to a few tracks, yeah. different performers, and um, that often related in some way to what we were reading or discussing in class that week. So at some point, you know, a few weeks into the semester. Um, we were one of the listenings. Um, I'm pretty sure it was a woman's places in the groove. Yeah. Um, we were listening to that. And, you know, it's on the list is the Vivian Gary Quartet. And, and uh, so I was expecting to hear horns, yeah. rhythm section, as, as most of the listenings had been. And, and then there's this violin. So I was really struck by that. Um, I wanted to know who that violinist was. Um, 
I'm not a jazz violin player, but I, I do play violin. And so I'm sort of interested in all things violin related. And um, I've definitely enjoyed listening to jazz violin and, you know, every now and then kind of tried my hand yeah. at it. And so I, th I thought, as you know, as you know quite well, jazz violin is a fairly small world and, and um, definitely from that time period, mid 20th century, you know, there's not that many jazz violinists, definitely not like today. So um, it was a real surprise to, to hear jazz violinist, a woman who I'd never heard of yeah. ever. Um, and that kind of set me down this, this track that I'm still on. Okay. Um, yeah, because for me, your article was, I, w I don't want to say the first time that I, I heard of Ginger Smock because I, I, I have a feeling that I've heard the name once or twice and I, and I have a feeling that that will be through our mutual acquaintance, um, Anthony. Anthony. Yeah. Uh, yes. I'm, in fact, he might have even mentioned her on this podcast in passing. I'm, I, I feel like it has happened, but I do think that it was the first time that I really found out about Ginger Smock, yes, Ginger Smock on, with, yeah, through your, through your article, and it was really, it was quite shocking because there, you know, there's the article. Go straight to find the track. I found that the track to Vivian Gary Quartet is it Vivian Gary, and uh -huh. it's just amazing, amazing sound. Yeah. And I hope you found there's one track I talk about in that article called Strange Blues. Yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, the strings, um, you know, they they when they put the the article up online, then they they link to a few sources that were available online. And um, afterwards, I realized, oh, Strange Blues, which is my favorite track, and the one I talk about in the article, is not available. So I called up Anthony and I said, "Can we put Strange Blues up on YouTube?" Yeah. I know he's not. He's not he doesn't like it. Things going up on YouTube, but he, he was very happy to do that. And um, that's cool. So I put up Strange Blues, and I um, and I've been, you know, as people have been telling me, oh, I read the article. I it's so exciting to hear about Ginger Smock. Then I've been sending them the link for that track because I think if you want to hear Ginger Smock at the height of her soloing, I mm. I I just adore that track. But mm. yeah, she's she was an amazing player. Yeah, I think what was what's nice, uh, what was refreshing for me to hear is is that's it was like a real real nice mix of of stuff Smith's sort of. I mean, I don't want to just talk about other people's playing, but there was that swing that stuff Smith had over that I felt stuff Smith always had over people like Grappelli, but still with that classical technique and still with that like you know there's some really nice tone in there you know you can tell that you can tell i think anytime you listen to a violin on an old recording like that especially with a band there's going to be there's some battling going on right between the violinist and and the rest of the band and and the tone can lose out but you can still tell that there's like a really amazing tone there so yeah i was yeah. i was blown away um would you would you mind going into a little bit of of ginger smock's life Sure. Um, and well, anything in particular? Well, I'd be interested to know just a little bit, or I think listeners would probably be interested to know just a little bit about her musical origin origins and how she learned violin. And do you, do you know, can you pull that sure. out of your head? 
<laughs> yeah, sure. I can tell you what I, what um, what I've got, and and of course uh, I tried to you know write what I what I knew of in the strings article. And I should say I'm I'm working on a longer article that that would be for an academic publication. Ah. So um, I can let you know when that comes out. Things work, move slowly in the academic world, so that's very exciting. Don't hold your breath. But um, <laughs> Ginger Smock was born in 1920. She was born in Chicago. But at a young age, at about the age of six, she moved to Los Angeles to, and she grew up there. Um, mm -hmm. And she was raised by her aunt and uncle. And um, so she was growing up in Los Angeles in this community um, around Central Avenue, uh, which was an incredibly vibrant uh, African-American community that, um, that was really like the, the musical center of, um, well, it depends who you ask. I think you could think okay. of it as the musical center of, of uh, jazz in Los Angeles or, or of the West Coast or um, Betty Cox, who was a, who was a local historian, um, um, wrote that, you know, one of the things that always stood out to me was the, the Dunbar Hotel, which was right there in, in Central Avenue, um, was, um, I think, one of the few or maybe the only places west of the Mississippi where African-Americans could go and spend the night and hear music. And so, it, you know, this the, the whole history is... Um, it's a history that's that's also tied up with the histories of discrimination and segregation in the United States, which um, which often I think it, we associate with just maybe the the South, the American South, but there were um, there was also segregation and discrimination in Los Angeles at the time that she was growing up, and and um, one of the things that made Central Avenue so close-knit and, and vibrant was that um, it was very difficult for African-Americans to, to live in the neighborhoods surrounding that because, uh, uh, well, I'm not gonna get into the whole history of like housing discrimination in the United States, but feel free to look it up. But um, there, were, there were restrictive housing covenants in other neighborhoods and there was um, discriminatory policies. So, so the, the result of that is this very, um, close African American community that's that's all based around this one this one part of the city, and um, it was incredibly vibrant. I mean, that you know, the 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 performers who were coming through and the clubs and there were some um, local record labels and and uh, and there was also an incredible amount of. Um, Music education, and that's a re that's really key to her growing up. There, there were um, there were local music schools. We maybe what we would think of as community music schools, um, where where families could uh, sign their kids up for lessons, and there'd be recitals, and and then there was also music in the local schools. Um, and Ginger Smock really came up through that. She um, she studied violin, classical violin, with um, a teacher named. Bessie Doan Downs. I'm not actually sure how it's pronounced. And um, she went to 
to Jefferson High School where she played in the band. She was the drum majorette, actually. Ah. Um, under um, the celebrated leader, um, uh, Sam Brown, who, you know, many great um, jazz musicians came out of that program. Mm. So she had, she had a, you know, a really strong musical upbringing. Um, and, um, and she was also seems to have been something of a child prodigy. I mean, she was playing um, some pretty high profile public performances when she was quite young. And um, she was, um, you know, in the junior symphony or the all city orchestra and she went to conservatory. It's, it's like, it, it's this, this track toward um, a pretty high level classical career, you know, to some extent. Um, and, and that's where she thought she was headed toward an orchestral career. But the other side of that is in, she was born in 1920. And at the time that she would have been in conservatory and graduating so around 1940, early 40s, um, professional orchestras in the United States didn't hire African-Americans. Um, so there, there, you know, there was no job. Um, and um, so she continued performing locally, playing. Um, she worked at a lithography shop. And then she got a call, I think it was in 1943, um, around then, to sub for Steph Smith at a local club. So he mm. was not able to make make the gig. And um, is this, did she already have a relationship with Steph Smith at this point? You know, it's not clear to me. She, she mentions in some interviews meeting him, and I don't actually know if she'd met him before this or after it was sometime okay. around then this is something Anthony Anthony and I chatted about is when was that first meeting she definitely knew who he was and she and in addition to playing classical violin and being in a band at school and so on um she was also she she says she she loved jazz she listened to a lot of jazz she would sit at home and try to improvise along with the records of jazz violinists and she listened to the radio. So she, she had it in, in her musical mind, but she didn't think of herself as a jazz violinist at that time. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I, my sense is that she thought of herself as a musician, a working yeah. musician. And you know, you know how that goes. You're a working mm. musician. Someone calls you for a gig, you take the gig. Yeah. And um, so she took this gig and, um, it seems like it was a success. Like the, you know, that when you, well, I've done some some work like going back and looking at the historical newspapers. So there's some, um, um, she's not mentioned hardly at all in the, like the Los Angeles, the main Los Angeles papers, but there, there were local African-American newspapers. So there's, there's this whole network of historical, or I should say a whole network of black newspapers in the United States. Now I would call them historical black newspapers because they're from the 1940s, the ones that I'm looking at, 50s and so on. But um, but she's mentioned quite a quite a bit in those papers, and so um, yeah, it sounds like the gig went well. And then she started a band, a trio called the Sepia Tones, with two yeah. other women. Um, they seem to have had quite a lot of early success. Um, 
but then, you know, there's another element that comes into play here also, which is that at the time, um, there were certain expectations about what kind of music women played. And um, in general, that was an expectation that they would play sort of a lighter repertoire and more novelty repertoire. Um, if you're interested in this, you could check out some of the writing by Sherry Tucker. She's a okay. wonderful um, historian. She's written a lot about um, women jazz musicians, especially um, during the, the the war years. And um, she has a great book called Swing Shift about, okay. about all girl bands. All right. In that time period. Fantastic book. Did but you say Sherry Tucker? Sherry Tucker. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and she, yeah, she's got several other publications as well. And and she also wrote a really great article um, about West Coast jazz, but about about um, not maybe not what is often called West Coast jazz, but about this other world of West Coast jazz. And that's um, I think you can get it online. It's within the Pacific Review of Ethnomusicology. Mm -hmm. I'm getting that right. Um, yeah. Anyways, she's a, she's a great great resource, and she interviewed Ginger Smock shortly before she passed away. In um, is that that the video? No, that's not that's not Cherry Tucker. That's Betty okay. Cox. So okay. Betty Cox. So there there are two interviews. Um, is that right? Well, there's some other sources where we have quotes from Ginger Smock, but those in a way I think of those as sort of the two primary interviews. So Betty yeah. Cox interviewed Ginger Smock, and there's that wonderful video now that's been put out by the UCLA archives. Yeah, it's cool. Betty Cox's archives. And then there's Sherry Tucker, who interviewed Ginger Smock. And if you want to read excerpts of that, that's in this article I just mentioned from the Pacific yeah. Review of Ethnomusicology. So that's like a lot of documentation there, but. That's cool. Is it, no, it's really interesting to hear, uh, you know, how, what goes into this sort of research really is, mm. um, uh, you know, I don't know, I, for me, especially me, just I'm a musician. I'm not, you know, I'm not, never been a researcher. In fact, I'd be really interested. To, is this the first time that you've ever researched uh, a specific person in this way? Um, in, to this extent, yeah, I suppose so. For, for one person, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think part of that, I mean, there's, you know, part of that for me was that um, I was so fascinated by her story and by the fact that, you know, the further into it you get it, um, she, her list of accomplishments is qu quite impressive. And, yeah. the, and it's sort of the disconnect between that and the fact that nobody's ever heard of her or very, that she, you know, yeah. isn't really not present in our, in our, our conversations nowadays about jazz violin, like that, that, fascinates me yeah um that kind of historical forgetting mm -hmm. and why that happens and um and the ways that, that that forgetting is tied up with our understandings of um i guess of, I, i'd say of who belongs in history mm -hmm. and how the questions of who belongs are tied up with gender and race mm -hmm. and age also mm -hmm. you know um, uh, do you mind? Do you mind going into that? Like what? Yeah, just what you're sure. Saying? Well, I mean, so if I kind of maybe if I pick up 
a little bit, you know, about where I left off there because, yeah. Okay. So actually one of the things I should say is, so I gave you a bit of her childhood and, you know, early story there. And, um, if we're going to talk about gender and, you know, how women are often represented, this is something that, that Sherry Tucker speaks about quite eloquently that, that stories about women and about their professional careers tend to tend to represent them as, as amateur um, mm -hmm. and tend to focus, for instance, on their childhood and on their influences and don't actually talk about their professional successes. Mm. Um, and whereas with men, the stories tend to be that we talk about the, their careers and how they mm. build their careers. Um, so, um, and that's, that's a, actually something that you can see in the early 1950s, um, there's a profile of Smock and Downbeat. And by the time we get to that, I think it's 1951, you know, so that by that point, she had this first gig in the, let's say 1943. We don't, I don't know exact date because I've just seen different references for when that gig is, but it seems to be 1943. Um, she had that, then she had the sepia tones. Um, then she started getting called into the recording studio. She plays on this girls and jazz um, album. She plays on four sides for this girls and jazz album, which is produced by Leonard Feather. Um, she's not after the sepia tones, then she has this whole slew of bands and she's playing local clubs. I mean, she's in the newspaper all the time. Um, they're playing, um, what does she have? She has Ginger and her magic notes. She has the four V's. Um, she also gets a, a, a bunch of gigs. Um, again, this ties to kind of the expectations of what, who plays what music, but she gets, she gets gigs playing like gypsy music, um, mm. which she seems to love. And she gets not gypsy jazz, but sort of more like, um, I doesn't think of it as the like, term gypsy jazz existed. Yeah. No, this is more anyway. like like kind of light classical repertoire that's got some imagined vision of what imagined European gypsies would be like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so it has nothing to do with like Roma music or people yeah. at all, but it's sort of like this, you know, sort of popular imagining of that. Um she gets this long-running gig at the, this place called the Waikiki, where she and the band dress, as she says, Hawaiian, and they play what they call island music. So this is all like, like very successful. She's like a her professional working musician. She's got plenty of gigs. She's got lots of recognition. Um, they have, you know, every name you can imagine. She's called the Sweetheart of the Springs. She's called... Um, um, she's, um, well, that's later. She's, you know, she's billed as the bronze gypsy. That's, that's, that's later, not in the late forties, but, um, um, yeah. And then she, and then she's starting, she's getting called at the recording studio. She's, she's working as a sideman at, on different, um, for different lineups. And, and you can just check out Anthony's great discographies of her, um, for that. She's also starts to make demos and, and all of these early recordings you can hear on this 2005 um, CD that, that Anthony Barnett put out called Strange Blues. Um, so she's making these demo recordings, she's playing local clubs, she's just working like crazy. She's also seems to be 
involved in a lot of community organizations. We're playing for the church and playing for benefits. Um, and then I'm getting to this 1951 moment. So then, then she gets called to be band leader on a television show. Mm-hmm. Um, and for this band, all women, all an all women band called the Chicks and the Fiddle, um, on a national CBS show. Um, they rehearse, they get some press, but they there's no corporate sponsor, and so the show closes after about eight eight weeks. Um, but then after that, she gets called to um, be a guest on the local variety show called Dixie Showboat. And she's such a hit there, I guess, that um, she first in the ads, first she's billed as a special guest, and then eventually she becomes kind of a regular member of the of the crew. Um, so, okay, so all of this is going, like here she is 30 years old. And then there's this interview in Downbeat, the profile in Downbeat in 1951 that only talks about her childhood and her influences. Wow. And there's only one item of her professional career that's mentioned, which is that Girls in Jazz album that Leonard Feathered produced. So that's crazy. It's kind of crazy. So anyways, that, yeah. So talking about historical forgetting, I feel like that that's, to me, that's all, that's all part of the story. It would be, yeah, it would be interesting, you know, to know as if this is a, you know, you're, you've gone super, you've gone super deep into the life of, and the musical life of Ginger Smock. Like what was one of the main take-home things that, that, or one, what is one of the take-home things that stuck with you about this whole, her story? Mm. Made me think a lot about, um, I guess we're gonna just talk about gender a lot. It made me yeah. think a lot about how different professional trajectories are for women and for men as they age. Mm. Because um, because her career de- develops, you know, the 40s, then the 50s, she's got this television work, radio work. She's touring nationally with the Steve Gibson and the Red Caps. They're like an R&B band. And, and um, she's getting all these gigs in Las Vegas. Um, she becomes, in the 60s, she becomes music director for um, this sort of daily cruise ship to the Catalina Islands. So it's so it's just like, you know, you look at it, I mean, you know, I've spent enough years as a working musician, like I to look at that and say like, wow, she was gigging. Yeah. She, you know, she was doing well. She was gigging. She was known in the community. She had some some good touring. She decided she didn't want to do a whole lot more touring. She just came back. She got some local gigs. Like she had a strong career. Um what didn't happen for her, which happened for other jazz violinists, was this kind of late career recognition, you know, sort of the discovery moment, mm. which, if it had happened for her, would have been probably in the 70s. So she would have been in her 50s then, right? And, and this is when she's, um, she's had a long career. Now she's doing more local work. She's playing in a lot of um, like, um, or, like orchestras backing big name singers. Then she moved to Las Vegas, where that's pretty much what she does, right? In the starting in the seventies, playing in these big showroom orchestras. But this is the, the, you know, if she were Stuck Smith, maybe this is the moment 
where there would be kind of that late career recognition mm -hmm. of an album, of some festival gigs, of some woman saying, oh, oh my gosh, like, look at this treasure. Um, or Papa John, Papa John Creech, you know, they sort of like yeah. these moments, like these moments later well, in Grappelli the Grappelli as well, right? Grappelli, yeah. sort of, Grappelli had a, a sort of, I know he was celebrated in his early life, but he also, he had a, he had a long period of just being a gigging musician around, and he had a, a resurge and a, a and became more famous when he was older. I think right. is that all right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I don't know Grappelli's history that closely, but but I'm going to take your word on that one. Um, well, never take my word, but uh, <laughs> but from what I've from what I've uh, you know from the stuff that I've checked out, there was definitely a moment like there was a time when he was just playing in paris hotels uh and i think that's when yeah well anyway he's just playing in paris hotels and it was like maybe yeah maybe in the 70s someone was like hey come up and you came around the uk and became really really famous in the uk maybe that's just maybe i'm just being uk centric but i think i think it did happen anyway well uh, yeah, yeah so so ginger smog she wanted that it's pretty clear that she wanted that and yeah. she and she thought she deserved it mm. and when you listen to her early recordings and you look at her career trajectory you know then then you say yeah well, you know what happened um mm. but um and we know she wanted that because 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 I read these letters she wrote to John Reeves, who was a Canadian jazz violin collector, mm -hmm. um, who was in touch with her, got in touch with her in the 70s. Um, and, um, and, and, and he did his best at that time to help her make that happen. I mean, she was also doing what she could. She was, you know, recording some demos and, and, um, and then he was sending out letters Basically, what she wanted was a, an album and some festival gigs and, you know, as you say, like that kind of late career success recognition. And um, and there's there are these years where she and John Reeves are writing back and forth. And he's saying, well, I tried, you know, I sent out these letters and uh, they might be interested. Mm. And then they're never interested um, or they're interested, but sorry, we already have jazz violinists on our roster. You know, it's not the time, but that's, see, that's the line that she got her whole, that's the line she got her whole life to some extent. Like we already have fill in the name of a male jazz violinist. Yeah. Um, so, um, so yeah. So what's the, you know, there are many, I think there are many takeaways from her story, but definitely one of them is that is that we live in a musical world where being a 50 or 60 year old woman is not mm. the same as being a 50 or 60 year old man with this, you know, in terms of what happens to your career trajectory. Yeah, and but what, why, why do you think that is? I know that you, you, you're not uh, gonna have all the answers, but what, 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 why do you think that is? Well, why do I think that is? Because because people like to go to shows and see young women's bodies on stage. It's not about positioning women musicians as as somehow victims or help you know kind of helpless in, in a larger system. That 
and that actually position positioning women like that is part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at the same time that this these article this article about Ginger Smock of, of um, you know only talking about her childhood around the same time, you know, if you look at other articles about women musicians, women jazz players coming out in downbeat, for instance, Leonard Feather wrote a whole series. The way that the way that the women are kind of always portrayed is is as, as like helpless in the face of sexism. Mm. Um, and when you look at Ginger Smock's story, it's like, it, it's, you know, she had a lot of agency. She had a lot of control. She was a band leader. She was an arranger. She was a composer. She called the shots in a lot of her work. And I think she was quite good at that, yeah. clearly. I mean, otherwise you don't keep getting hired. Yeah. Band leader. But but the place where that she didn't have that control at that time was around recording mm. because uh, she could make the demos, but that required like an A&R person then saying, no, yeah, we want to sign you to this label. You know, there's that. So that's that was a sort of an access place of access that um, was was not as open to her. I mean, she did make recordings for sure, yeah. but she also tells stories about, um, at the, you know, it kind of, in some ways at the height of her, her early career in the early fifties, playing a gig, having an A&R rep come up to her and say, I love what you're doing. Send me, you know, make a demo. She makes the demo. He brings it back to RCA Victor and they say, that's amazing. Who's playing the violin? This story is an article. And, and um, yeah, I saw that. And then they and and he says, "Oh, this, well, so this is interesting because when she tells the story to John Reeves, she, as she writes it to him, she says that the A and R rep says it's a girl in San Francisco, and they say, oh, forget it, we have Joe Venuti, Joe Venuti.' But when mm-hmm. she tells the same story to Sherry Tucker in an interview, she's then the A and R rep says it's a colored girl in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and then they say we have Joe Venuti. Right. So, um. So, so this is how, you know, I think those stories both come from later in life. That's her looking back on her career. I mean, that, that telling of the story, but I think this is how she understood that these kind of sort of turning points when you can, you're successful, but you can kind of break into the next level, which I think for her would, would have been through a recording. Yeah. Um, or through some more high-profile gigs, and those moments, um, she saw those moments over and over, not being accessible to her. Um, and there's no question that you know when women were on stage at that time, it was partly about their bodies, as women on stage today often it's still about their bodies you know so um but i guess i'm also i also want to recognize that women musicians in the mid-century were very aware of that it's part of the job sure what they did you know yeah and and smock herself says that in a in an interview in the interview with sherry tucker she said you know i had this these publicity photos that made me look what does she say positively vampish but that was just part of the job. That's yeah. 
it's that like she's very practical about it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you know that sort of the way gender and race and age intersect. The way gender and race shape, you know, sort of what opportunities are available, mm-hmm. changes with age. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's too simplistic. I don't know if I'd say it exactly like that. I think I might just say that that you know. Um, in a musical career, especially at the time that Ginger Smock was working, which was the 1940s through the 70s, 80s, um, the body that you're in shapes to some extent the yeah. opportunities that you have. It's not just how you play. Yeah. Um, and the way, and, the, and an older woman's body is. Um, as a society, you know, we put different meaning on that than an older man's body. I think that maybe just, yeah, you know, but um, but but I think it is it's really important not to position Ginger Smock as a victim. Of course, you know, yeah. um, it's I think it's more a question of. Um, she she was very successful at working um, at at recognizing um, how to make a living with what mm. she was doing playing yeah. jazz violin in these times and yeah. and you know and part of part of what she was so good at was what I would call stage presence or performance yeah. you know like she was just this seems to be a stunning performer like she would yeah. get up and she would hold the stage. Yeah. Um, and so that you know, that's all. That's also part of it. It's like she knew that the body she was in was part of what she was. What sure. She was performing. Yeah. And she and she knew how to do that in a really like powerful way. Yeah. You know what? Just going back to actually Ginger's music, it was inter- it's interesting. You said that she that she was she played drums to begin with. Yeah. All right. She did a bit drum. Yeah. Well, she was she... the drum majorette. I I don't. I've never heard any recordings or anything of her playing drums. But she was the drum majorette in the high school band. Yeah, because she does play with a lot of rhythm. She is. Yeah. It's that's the thing. Is I think that violin is often, or when when people come from a classical background, often don't play with. They don't get that swing as much as you know as a as a sax player. And you know, a lot of that's due to sax players will be playing in big bands and they get used to that swing and blah, blah, blah. But Ginger Smock, there doesn't seem to be any issue with that. There's like full on rhythm. There's full on, uh, why have I forgotten the word? She's, she knows how to play with the offbeats, basically. Syncopation, there you go. Imagine forgetting that word. That's pretty embarrassing, yeah. isn't it? Um, oh yeah, I know. Her rhythmic sense is it's amazing. And um, that's something that, well, you know, Anthony Barnett, um, he, he, I don't know if you've heard, he, he has this great story that he tells about talking to Steph Smith and saying, is there anyone else who plays like you? Oh, yeah. He says, yeah, Ginger Smock. Yeah. Um, so, you know, with yeah. that, like, um, I mean, you could call it like a horn-like approach. Yeah. But I think rhythm is, it's part of that. It's like, maybe it's sort of the way horns 
approach rhythm. It totally is, I'd say. When I hear that, it's like the backing lines, you know. In my head, when I hear Stuff Smith and Ginger Smock playing those little those little lines in the background, it's basically a sax section to me, you know. It's exactly the same thing. But yeah, it's interesting that it comes that that she came. She did have a sort of uh, a little bit of a background in drums, and I think that a couple of violinists I've spoken to on here, and exactly are exactly the same. Actually, you know, they find that having having some drumming does help that. Um, what's this new uh, the new thing that you're doing about? You know, the focus of this project for so long has been, well, first it was just trying to understand some of her career. Ch- trajectory and looking through the historical African-American newspapers. And then through some um, kind of wonderful, fortuitous circumstances, I I ended up getting in touch with these two families. So one was, um, well, I won't get into all the connections right now, but it was essentially um, sort of a member of her extended family. Okay. And um, and the other one was, was the family of, of John Reeves. Mm. So in touch with, with his son Dean. And um, so um, so both families had um, archives that I would think of as archives that relate to Ginger Smock. So then I worked with them to digitize those and deposit the collections at the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. And um, and so I so I've been yeah I guess I've been working on that and and did some some kind of public presentations about Ginger Smock but I hadn't really written anything and so okay. I was really glad to write the Springs article but because I'm in academia I sort of also feel like this you know this is something I want to also write an academic article about mm-hmm. so. Um, so I'm imagining, yeah, a couple of pieces. Um, I think an article, a lot, just you know, academic articles are longer <laughs> than magazine articles. So you can think of it the strings article, but like more in depth, and and maybe um, I want to try to you know spend some more time thinking through these questions around age, mm. and um, and kind of these the, these the con- the constraints that. Um, around gender and race and age and and how she was negotiating those and her sense of, um, yeah, I think sort of her sense of musical identity. And um, so, so yeah, so I'm writing about that. And uh, and then I think I'll, I'll, I'll also like to write something about her Las Vegas years because um, okay. we have all these amazing letters. Um, so it's a project that's been going on for a while and I've been, I guess I've been really focused on the archiving side of it. Yes. Um, and it's exciting to be at a stage now where I'm just trying to, to write a bit more and, and get some more information out. Um, get it out basically. Yeah. You've, probably, yeah, you've obviously got loads of information and you, you need to, yeah. You're, you're yeah. Finding new ways to get it out. That's cool. Um, yeah, there's a lot of information and, and um, it, yeah, it feels like um, 
I mean, I'm really in it, so it's hard to like sort of step out from the outside and look at it. But I feel like it's an important story to tell. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I mean, when you talk about the forgetting of this this musical forgetting or people us us forgetting, you know, different people, is this mm-hmm. is a good way to to sort of remedy that? Because obviously she was forgotten. I know I know that you don't want to say talk about her too much as a victim but she totally she's been missed out of the timeline in, in jazz violin uh for me anyway and uh and she has and it it's a shame do you think that there's there would ever be a chance of of a of some more releases do you, you know um well the recordings are complicated i mean they are all at the smithsonian now so okay that's a public institution so I guess I should say that the recordings that Anthony Barnett put out on the Strange Blue CDs are a CD are her studio and demo recordings, right, from the first decade yeah, yeah. of her career, and those were those were commercial. They were like made in, in professional recording studios, and sure. even if they were unreleased, for the most part, I think there's you know there's some air checks and so on, but um, but the later recordings are are quite different because I mean they're pretty much they're all from John Reeves, almost all. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's there's a wide range. I mean, some of it is some of it is is Ginger Smart making dubs of her own earlier commercial recordings on a tape and sending that yeah. to John Reeves and commenting. And I think the commentary is really interesting too. Mm. The sound quality is not so great because it's like a copy of the copy. Sure, yeah. But she's saying, "Oh yeah, here's a track that I did, you know, with so and so." And um, there's that, but there's also things like. John Reeves and Ginger Smock sitting around at his house listening to Jean-Luc Ponty and talking about it. <laughs> and, that's amazing. And uh, you oh know, my god, other, that's so cool. And I'd to other to other jazz violinists, like just listening <laughs> to jazz violinists and talking. And then there's um, there's some shows that she did that he recorded, but where the unfortunately the audio quality of the recording or maybe the tape is degraded or something. But it's just, you know the sound quality is just really 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 difficult yeah so so it's not as easy as saying like okay all of this stuff should just sure like it's you know it's anthony did this amazing curation process with those early recordings it's amazing that yeah i need to get i need to get hold of that the problem is i don't have a cd player this is that's the thing and nobody has a cd player and these i really would like to see these in some way be on the internet i really do i mean yeah we'll talk, talk to anthony about that one i will do <laughs> or maybe actually no i won't i'm not gonna i'm not gonna i'm not gonna try and tell him to put his music up online if he doesn't want to but there's all this stuff and it's like i'd, I'd love it i'd love it if it was online there's there's some stuff online right there's a couple of recordings that you can yeah, find yeah there's a couple of recordings of, of, i mean you could buy a cd player i could buy a cd player i'm not just saying for me you know, no, I could I know, buy a CD I know, player. I know what you're saying. One could buy a CD player. Yeah. Everyone could buy a CD But, like, I don't know. Is that going to happen? Well, we, I think, yeah. This is maybe a longer conversation about about equitable. Yeah, because then you put it on Spotify, and it's like, cool, now no money is made whatsoever. Right. Yeah, so, and, so you know, I think if there's... it's a, This is a much larger question about um, digital distribution and equitable um payment for digital distribution so i'm not going to get yeah. into that conversation um but yeah anyway so for the other recordings I, you know they're 
there um i think there's sort of a longer process of yeah of going through those and um and i think it's also important to recognize that that you know in in, in the years when those recordings were made which is the the last decades of her life she wasn't playing jazz right she was concert master for sammy davis jr yeah in las vegas so she was playing but her her jazz chops were um she wasn't keeping up her jazz chops in the same way and she that's something that she also says in her letters um so there's some night there's some nice moments but it's not um Yeah, I mean, I think part of part listening to those older recordings, part of what it makes me think about is what would have happened if after she recorded Strange Blues back in the 50s, a record label had really taken her seriously. Yeah. And said, this is, you know, run with this. Like, we love this. Hmm. Because, but that's not what happened. And that is a shame. And, and I do think that people's music gets better because of through through uh, positive reinforcement as well, you know. Well, it's, I mean, as, as a musician, you know this. As a musician, you you get better at the kind of music you get to play. Yeah. So if you know if 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 it in her later career, she's primarily doing orchestral work and and on the when she was doing the cruise ship, that was also island music. That's yeah. what we wanted. So so you know i don't you know and and this is it's a value judgment that we could choose to make or not about you know what kind of music do we what kind of musical sounds from her career do we value more but that maybe we just need to weigh that with what was she given the opportunity to record anyways but i think hopefully it just opens more questions for all yeah. to think about well thanks so much for thanks so much for doing this well, uh, thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Uh, it's really interesting. It's really interesting to hear. It's interesting to hear what goes into, uh, you know, a, an article such as the one that you were doing, or and, and I guess the, the wider research that you're doing. But it's inter it is interesting to hear what goes on um, behind Thanks. those things. Yeah. And interesting to hear your thoughts on, on Ginger and her music and her career. And yeah, thanks so much for, thanks so much for doing it. Um, is there... Is there any is there anything that you you know that you'd like to plug or anything like that? Um, I think if you're going to a, a, attach anything to this online, please put that um, the strange blues. It's up on yeah. YouTube, and yeah. and definitely um, for those who do still have CD players, put, <laughs> please put the link put the link to Strange Blues. Yeah, um, because it's such a great album, and and um, uh, it'd be great for folks to go out and get that plus you know it's got detailed liner notes and everything so yeah yeah definitely if you can put the link to that for ordering and i've also put the link for ordering on on the uh the youtube clip with, with strange blues yeah so yeah you're talking about the the ab fable um yeah yeah exactly the but AB i'm going to um, archive the website so i'll put that i'll put i'll put a link on under the within within this yeah. uh, podcast well thanks so much for this nice to chat to you and uh, have a great rest of your day your pleasure take care all right Bye -bye. see you 
Hey, thanks so much for listening today, guys. That was really nice to chat to Laura. Um, I've got a load of links in the description of this podcast to, number one, the article that, um, that Laura, that we were talking about, that Laura wrote recently, and also to the recordings that we're talking about. So if you, uh, if you're unlike me, do have a CD player, um, I really need to get one, you know, this, uh, this conversation really made me think I should get a CD player. I think Laura's right. Um, anyway, if you have got a CD <laughs> doing it again i always talk a lot at the end don't i if you do have a cd player and you would like to buy this the music any of the music that we've spoken about plus you know so much stuff hey go to the there's a link in this description for ab fable which is anthony barnett you heard us talk about anthony and uh, during this podcast quite a lot anthony is like a sort of a he's like the, the guy when it comes to jazz violin he's just got so much knowledge and he has put together so many amazing records of unheard jazz violin music that that's uh, that's amazing so if you would like to get hold of any of that stuff and specifically the ginger smock cd please follow the link and go to anthony's website um yeah nice uh hope everyone's doing okay uh, i don't know about where you guys are but here in the uk we're starting to see a light at the end of the coronavirus tunnel maybe i don't want to speak too soon but it looks like maybe soon we'll be allowed to leave the house again which will be great i'll be nice maybe i'll play some gigs maybe maybe i'll maybe i've forgotten how to play gigs i don't know um but yeah i hope everyone's doing okay uh, i know it's a difficult time at the moment it has been for the past year but there we go um thanks very much for listening guys uh see you again soon bye